something for the people. I'm your host, B. Smooth, and today my illustrious guest is the talented, the intelligent, the, so many adjectives I'm forgetting right now, Mr. Bobby Davis, Jr. Hey, Welcome, hey. what's going on, what's going on? All right, Bobby, how you been doing? I'm doing well, man. It's yeah. another day. You know, it's feeling good, man. It's hot. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terribly hot, but we are African people. We are sun drinkers. Not really. <laughs> Man, tell it to my skin while it's filleting out in that sun, Doc. <laughs> all right, all right. So, as always, we always begin, like, baby, that Bobby, where were you born? Where was I born? Huh? Yeah. All right, I was born in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, circa 1993. All that is in southern Kentucky. It's near Metropolis, which is where Superman is from, if you don't know. It's about maybe 30 minutes outside of that city. Uh, and it's a country, little country town. Now it's more of a chocolate city. <laughs> but <laughs> when I lived there, it was a country town. So. Okay. All right. So how long were you in Kentucky? Yeah, man. So I was in Kentucky for, whew. I lived in Kentucky up until, I think, 9-11, actually. Mm. I moved to Indianapolis the year that 9-11 happened. Oh, okay, so yeah. tell, tell, before we go to uh, Indianapolis, tell me about what was it like growing up in uh, that small country town, Hopkinsville, um, Kentucky? Hey, dog, look, <laughs> it was so much fun, man. It was just, I mean, if you if you know anything about you know country and rural life, you know it's pretty much that, man. I remember, you know, my dad taking me duck hunting, man, and we used to just go out and shoot ducks. I didn't get to shoot them, but I got to watch them shoot them, and. You know, just peppered them up real nicely, like Dave Chappelle said. Just peppered them up real nicely, not buckshot. And uh, filling up the baskets with them and taking them home. I think he would go and sell some of them. We'd eat a little bit of it. It's just a good time, man. I remember having a German shepherd. He used to run around named Mozart, and he was a lot of fun, dude. We used to run him all around the city. That's a, that's a unique name for a dog, Mozart. Where'd oh, you, yeah. Where'd you, get that, where'd you get, get that name? You know, I didn't name the dog, but he was mine. He was mine. He was very protective over me. I was a, you know, for me as a little kid, I thought he was huge. <laughs> now I look back at the pictures and he was a little fella. <laughs> man, so I don't know who he was going to be trying to hurt. But man, he used to help me out. We had these kids across the street named the Bryan Street Kids. That's what we called them, the Bryan Street Kids. It's like a gang, man. They were basically a gang. <laughs> they were like a gang. They were like a gang of like eight-year-olds, bro. Like eight and ten-year-olds, fam. And just, you know, like. You know, I was never allowed to cross the street to go over to Bryan Street. Because Bryan Street was always something happening, man. So I remember I, if I did have to go across the street, I had my dog Mozart with me. You know, 
Now the traumatic part of that story is, is those kids poisoned my dog. What? Yes. What? How did, how they poisoned. I don't know what they did to him, but they did. They gave him some poison. Him. I came out one side. The most morbid part of my my life. I think I. I, I think well, it gets more morbid. But <laughs> the first traumatic, real traumatic thing I probably went through was seeing my dog's eyes carved out. So, oh my God! That yes, is that is it was. Horrific. It is. It is a memory that haunts me till this day. And that is a. That is your first October story. If you need a good scary story for October, oh, man, man, my, my, this is, you guys. You guys have been scared. I, I'm scared. I'm scarred. Don't let that haunt you in your sleep. All right. All right. So, so tell me, what was your family life like in yeah. Kentucky? Family life in Kentucky. Ooh. So, hmm. So I was really young. Uh, when I lived in Kentucky, so there's not a whole lot that I remember. Uh, but my family life was, um, there were great days and there were bad days, I put it that way. Uh, I had my dad in my life for a period of time during that time in Kentucky. Uh, and then uh, maybe a year or two before we moved to Indianapolis, he ended up going to jail. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he got sentenced to prison. Uh, for a longer extended stay, he calls it a state paid vacation. <laughs> uh, uh, we used to uh, we used to talk about like when people in my family would like go like go to jail, go to prison. We were like, oh, they went they went to college. Uh huh. <laughs> 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 it was like, that boy keep getting degrees. <laughs> well, that would have been so for my pops. That if he was going to college, that was going to college. That would have been his uh, probably his third or fourth degree because he he got his he got a degree from uh, Murray State. Uh, down in Kentucky, um, majored in I think engineering or something like that. Went to the service for a while. Was stationed over in Germany for mm -hmm. quite a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that that kind of uh, that kind of interrupts a big part mm -hmm. of that time in that I lived in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one of my probably most memorable moments. But out beyond that, uh, I have a faint memory of my grandparents. They died when I was relatively young, maybe mm -hmm. when I was around three or four. Uh, but they lived there as well. They owned a farm for a while. They ended up selling that farm uh, to, they sold that property to a church. Uh, I actually went to that church uh, for a while called All Nations House of Prayer. And uh, they built, they bought more land around that. And now it's like a mega church down there. It's okay. one of the biggest churches in Kentucky. Um, but uh, yeah, those were some significant parts of my life. I don't really, like I said, I don't remember too much. I was so young. Yeah. Did you have, so, any, uh, you have any siblings? I do. Mm -hmm. I have two siblings. Mm -hmm. I have two older sisters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so my oldest sister, her name is Shakia, uh, Shakia Johnson. They're both married. Mm -hmm. uh, Shakia is maybe like 13 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Liz Tolez, <laughs> Elizabeth Tolez. She uh, she is 28. She's two years older than me. Mm -hmm. Okay, so your other sister, it was just like, she's way away from y'all, because 13 is oh, a yeah. long time, but you and your other sister, oh, yeah. so you guys are probably closer. We, you know, I, I said that we, my family kind of, you know, we tend to kind of hang tight. We have our own kind of individual relationships with one another. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, my, my closest relationship is actually more so with Liz, but that's just more so just because she lives so close to yeah. me. You know, uh, my older sister also, the only reason I'm not as close to her is just because she's like my second mom. Yeah, I'm like thinking that's a large age So I almost I almost engaged my older sister as if she were my parent. Right. You know, knowing obviously that her role is my sister, but yeah. because that role a lot of times also, you know, positioned her to be almost like a parent to me, you know, I, I kind of have that interaction with her to this day. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 
So you spend your first time being a country boy shooting ducks and <laughs> peppering them up real pepper nice. Peppering them up real nice. Pepper them up real nice. Them up nice. <laughs> you know. Okay, so tell us about like the move to Indianapolis. Oh man, I could tell you about that move, man. <laughs> I remember driving across the bridge uh, because you know, of course, to get to Indiana, uh, you have to pass through Louisville. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to pass through that bridge that connects you know, Louisville, like to New Albany, and all mm -hmm. of that. I remember crossing that bridge, man, and listening to uh, what was that song, uh, "Summer Rain" by uh, Carl Thomas, man. I never <laughs> forget that song because it always reminds me of that shift in my life moving from Kentucky to. Uh, Indianapolis and man it was I tell you what doc it was a culture shock <laughs> moving from Kentucky to Indianapolis it was something new I could tell you about I remember going to school right mm -hmm. so when I first moved to Indianapolis I moved to we moved to the west side mm -hmm. uh, we lived with my aunt and my uncle for a while and uh, I remember I went to a school called Guyon Creek man it was actually a really nice little school mm -hmm. uh, but I only went there for about a month because then we ended up getting a house of course we moved to the hood because it's cheaper to live in the hood. Yeah, you was just you like, know. this is nice, but this is not important. <laughs> but uh, I spent a brief time around, you know, around a, a somewhat of a multicultural space, about a month, you know, had little Asians in the neighborhood, a couple black folks in the neighborhood, white folks, you know, it was a nice little mix. You know, the beloved community, King would be proud. Right, and that's what I thought Indiana was. That's what I thought Indianapolis was. I was sadly mistaken. <laughs> So we ended up moving to uh, downtown Indianapolis, 36 in Salem, you know, which is, if anybody knows anything about Indianapolis, that's, you know, kind of that, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a hard neighborhood, a little bit of a real rough neighborhood, today over there by Graceland and uh, some of that area over there that's kind of around, I barely remember the streets. Um, but yeah, we ended up moving over there, moving to the hood. My mom got a job uh, working at the Martin Luther King Center, which was right up the street from my house over off of, uh, I think it's off of 34th in Illinois or somewhere on, no, off of 40th in Illinois. This was at 40th or 42nd in Illinois. And she worked over there for a while and it was, and she had a great job. And I remember the first night we stayed in that house, moved into a double. I never knew what a double was. <laughs> never heard of a double. Yeah, you know? I don't know what a double is. Either. Oh, a double is like a duplex, basically. Oh. We call them doubles in, in, in Indianapolis. Oh, yeah, I, I, didn't say, I didn't say duplex. Yeah, that's 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 two houses. Called. You know, two yeah. houses put together, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, uh, I remember the first night staying in that double, man. And I remember we, we didn't have much to eat. We only had a little bit to eat. I remember we had this can of like Chinese food, lo mein or something. Yeah. And my mom made it for us and stuff. And, you know, we sitting down, we didn't really have anything. We had maybe like a TV or something. So we watching TV. That's when you could watch TV with the coaxial yeah. out the wall, <laughs> you know, and just plug in and just get channels. Yeah. Now you don't, can't do that no more, but that's how it was back in the day. And uh, you had the man hook it up for you, like what kind of what channel you need? <laughs> that, that's that's later on. That's later on. <laughs> we get to that. We get to that. <laughs> we get to that. Hold on, just hold your horses. <laughs> but I remember that day, man, because I remember it was the first time I ever actually heard gunshots in the street. Because so. So you used to like gunshots going after uh, ducks. Yeah, you know that was that was you know that was different. That was hunting. Yeah. You know, but I I never heard you well, know gunshots were, you know being shot at people. Well, they were hunting you know. too. They were hunting uh, humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they sure was. Um, but now nah, it's actually gonna be a little bit of a funny story. But it, then it gets it gets worse later on. Mm -hmm. But um, 
you know, the, the funny part, the lighter part about it is most of the gunshots that we actually heard that night, not all of them, but most of them uh, were coming from across the street. Uh, there was a veteran that lived across the street. Yeah, Mr. Johnny. Mr. Johnny. Mr. Johnny would go outside, get drunk every night. No, every Saturday, every Friday, Saturday night. Go outside, get drunk, and at least about 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, start shooting his gun. That's what he did. That's what he did. Like at people or like just at the wherever, just wherever. That's, just, just, that's just, funny and scary. Just go outside, <laughs> Mr. Johnny and Mr. Jameson. Mr. Jameson lived right next door to us. So that's the closer gunshots we heard from Mr. Jameson. Mr. Jameson, was a, I think he was an Army veteran too. So he would go outside, be uh, fussing and arguing and doing all kind of crazy stuff. And uh, Mr. Jameson, he sadly he passed away not too long after we moved in. Um, but that was the first time I kind of heard you know, those gunshots in the street, but then... It wasn't just those. Mm -hmm. Right in behind us, you know, I remember hearing those gunshots in the back of my house. Those were the ones, those were the bullets that were actually going towards people. Okay. You know, and you know, obviously, you know, those kind of things, whether people get shot or not, or, you know, whether someone dies from those bullets or not, usually those types of things didn't get televised in my neighborhood. Yeah. You never hear about it. Um, later on, I think in my life, maybe, you know, a few years later, I just, I remember, actually seeing a man get shot in the street. Uh, it was actually a guy from my church. Oh, well, his uh, mom went to my church. Mm -hmm. So I'd seen him around, you know, and I remember seeing this dude get shot in the street in the middle of uh, 36 in Illinois, what it was, it was off of 36 in Illinois. And I actually had to play for his funeral musician. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was playing for a church at the time. This is way later on in life, of course. Mm -hmm. This is like middle school or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had to play for his funeral. Uh, and but at this point in my life, I was so numb to death that the death is not what bothered me. The funeral was not what bothered me. What bothered me about the funeral was the mom wanted me to play this song, and I didn't know how to play it. <laughs> and that's what bothered me the most. I think it was like it was a Tamla Man song. Whatever her first hit was, was it? I don't think it was "Take Me to the King." I can't remember what her first hit was. Maybe that was it. Uh, but whatever her first hit was, when she first got real popular, she wanted me to play that song, and I couldn't play it, and that hurt me more than seeing this man actually get gunned down in the street, and that's how exposed to violence I was, that the violence didn't bother me as much as, you know, failing to meet a musical obligation, you know, if that says anything. So, when did, when did you see yourself getting numb to the violence? I probably saw myself getting numb to violence. You know, I say it probably goes back to when I first moved to Indianapolis, man. And it's, it went beyond just the violence. It was just the behavior, mm -hmm. you know, which I'm not going to mark as negative necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just different from where I was from. Mm -hmm. And I remember, so I remember going to school. I was at IPS School 43. And uh, I remember going to school. And I'm not used to kids cursing in front of teachers, nor am I used to kids cursing me out or trying to fight me. You know, I'm a big guy. I was a big guy then. I'm a big guy. I was a big guy then. I'm a big guy now. And uh, I remember this kid named Michael. Uh, this guy, uh, he was cursing me out. We were, in, you know, in gym. No, we weren't in gym. We were in recess. Recess. I mean, he used to play this game called uh, Backboard Gamut. One of the best games you could ever play. Look it up if you've never okay. played it before. Okay. Look it I'm going to have to look this up. Yeah, look it up. Look it up. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Uh, but it was a serious thing to us in, in uh, elementary school. And I remember this cat coming up to me. I don't remember why he started cussing me out. This dude just started cussing me out, just firing off, just firing off. And for some reason, I didn't, I didn't really respond to him. 
you know, but eventually I started responding, hey, I'm going to go tell on your ass. Like, I'm about to go tell the teachers, like, you know, bro, like, you know what I'm saying, get your ass in trouble. We're going to see about that. How about that? And um, I went and I told Miss Rutherford, went and told her. I said, Miss Rutherford, Michael's over there cussing me out. I said, he's just cussing and he's trying to fight me. And you know what she did? She looked straight ahead. I think I seen her maybe shed a, shed a tiny tear, tiny tear, but she never said a word to me. Didn't say a word to me. And I'm like, hey, you got to do something about this. You got to do, this is your job. You yeah. got to, she didn't do nothing about it. That was my introduction to the, just the, the nature of violence, yeah. or at least the nature of the space that I was in. You know, I won't just mark it all as negative and as violent, but it was the, the nature of the space that I was living in that was so different from where I came from, you know. Yeah, so, so you mentioned, like, playing at the piano. When did you get introduced to being a musician, get introduced to music in general? Oh, man, you know, music <laughs> has been a part of my life for a long time, baby. Yeah. You know, I start, when I first moved to Indianapolis, uh, when my mom started working at the Martin Luther King Center, um, there were a lot of old jazz musicians yeah. that were involved in the center. Yeah. And uh, so uh, they kind of took a lot of the you know, people that came through there under their wing, uh, they gave free lessons. Uh, my sister got lessons from uh, this famous jazz pianist that worked there named Melvin Ryan. Uh, she got lessons from him and I was taking lessons from this guy, I remember his name was Ben, uh, and he was a drummer. Uh, did a lot of jazz drum, I think he might have went to school for it, but he worked for that YMCA. Uh, but also came and volunteered to do jazz stuff with us. Uh, so I was learning how to play jazz drums. That was my first little, my first little thing. I did, I did all right with it, but of course, you know, I don't have a kid at home. I don't have, you know, anything to practice on. So eventually, that kind of died off. Um, then one day, while I was in elementary school, I think I maybe was in fourth grade. Um, I was pulled out of class. And they pulled me out of class, and they, I guess, for some reason, they thought that it would be a good fit for me to participate in this uh, private lessons for violin program that they were offering. So, didn't know anything about it, really wasn't interested in it, but started playing violin. And, you know, they gave me private lessons up until fifth grade, and I ended up taking that to middle school. So, I played violin for quite some time. I think for about maybe at least four to five years, I played. Uh, I played up until um, until I got homeschooled later in middle school, and I uh, no longer could afford the instrument once I was homeschooled. Yeah. So uh, I kind of let it go, uh, but I played for a long time. Um, but homeschool is yeah. where yeah. homeschool is where it started. That's interesting. I, yeah. you, know, you, you I've never met anyone who's homeschooled. Yeah. What's that like? I was homeschooled for <laughs> a year. Uh, homeschool was like being a latchkey kid that took care of themselves. Yeah. Uh, well, taught themselves their own lessons. Well, I was a latchkey <laughs> kid, but I, I, I still had to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nah, we, you know, my, my sister and I were homeschooled uh, for a part of middle school. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really because of her. She just, um, she was getting teased at school mm-hmm. and just going through a bunch of things at school that I, I really actually didn't know a whole lot about mm-hmm. um, until later on in life. And uh, she asked my mom, she's just like, hey, I don't want to be there anymore. So my mom took her out, and I said, well, if she's going out, I'm going out too. I'm not going to be in school without my sister. Like, what do you think this is? <laughs> so we were homeschooled for a whole year. And uh, my mom at the time, she was working at the Martin Luther King Center, but she was also working at this church that we had just started going to called Living Water Church of God in Christ. And uh, so there, uh, we spent most of our time at the church 
you know. So it means I spend a lot of time in my Bible, <laughs> a lot of time spending time with God, so on and so forth. And uh, but um, my mom kind of left it up to us to do what we wanted to do in terms of how we educated ourselves that year, you know. Uh, which in part was just because she was so busy, she had to work. You know, she kept us with her. But she had to work, so you know we had to figure it out by ourselves that year. Um, so I tried to do a little bit of math for a while, and eh, it sucked. Uh, I read a little bit, but I hated reading, so it was just like I'm not going to do this. So me and my sister fought a lot. This is leading to the story about me how I got into playing, actually got into playing what I do now, playing piano. My sister fought a lot, and uh, one day uh, we had a lot of rivalries, rival rivalries, however you say that word, and. So one day my sister's practicing piano and then she sucked, obviously. And I was just like, she was practicing, she was trying to play Amazing Grace. And I said, hmm, you suck. She was like, well, you can't do any better. I was like, you wanna bet? Like, it's like, I bet you $20 by the end of this week. By the end of this week, I had that whole song learned. On piano, ready to go. She was like, yeah, all right. Bro, when I say I went to work, mm -hmm. I pulled out her keyboard doc, and every day I go, and they had the track on the keyboard, you can follow it. Yeah. So I listened to it, and I follow it, and by the end of the week, I was playing Amazing Grace. You got your $20. Oh, I got my $20, <laughs> brother. I got my 20 I took that to you. I shared it with her. I shared it because we shared everything. You know, I shared it with her. But, you know, I got my 20 though. I was just like, yeah, who's the best now? And then, you know, after that, I was like, man, this is kind of cool. I can really... Maybe this is what I should do this year. So I spent the whole year just learning how to play piano by ear, learning how to play keyboards by ear. And, you know, that led to me doing basically what I do now. You know, I started taking lessons. Okay, you know, I think once I got to high school is when I started taking lessons. I took private lessons. And um, came to college with it. Uh, really wasn't interested in studying music. Uh, but I was still interested in music. Uh, we can get to that story later. Yeah. Uh, but that's actually what led me to what I study now, which is uh, what part part what I study now. I study uh, undergrad. I did my got my degree in folklore and ethnomusicology. Uh, but you know, of course, now I'm doing African American and African diaspora studies, uh, which we can come back yeah. to, of course. Uh, but that's that that year being homeschooled and learning how to play piano by ear is what led me to exactly where I am right now. Yeah. That's amazing how, like, this with our education system, it just makes me think of our education system, how it tries to be, like, one size fits all. Mm -hmm. But, like, with you, it was just, like, you found what, what your niche was, how you learned, like, something that interests you, yep. and you learned it. And I think, like, we, we don't do that to, like, other kids. Mm -hmm. Like, other kids, like, we like, if you don't, you got to do math, you got to become, you got to do the same three things, doctor, lawyer, policeman, firefighter, the same things. Yeah. And people don't, like, like people learn different, children learn different, and, I think that's fascinating that you homeschooled and you found your niche. Yeah. I tell you what, man, you know, and that's one of the beautiful things about my mom, man. My mom never really pressured us to do stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom just made sure that we had the opportunity. Mm -hmm. The opportunity was always presented to us to do things. Mm -hmm. She never pushed us. In, well, with the exception of the year that she pushed me into doing wrestling. Now, she did make me do that because I needed to get some exercise. I was, I was, husky. I was a husky boy, and she said, no, nah, you're you going to do something. She's like, She's like you either, yeah, you either going to play football or you're going to do wrestling. So, And I chose wrestling, and I did that for a year. I loved it, man. It was, it was the best sport I've ever played. I still love wrestling. But, uh, but outside of that, my mom always, gave, always presented us with options. 
you know, allowed us to kind of choose what we did and left it up to us how we navigated it. She never tried to push us or prod us or make us do things, um, you know, that we didn't want to do. Yeah. It seems like you, you're very close. What's your relationship like with your mom? It seems like you really, oh, like, man. your mom is like, like this oh, yeah, mom. that's mom. Yeah. Dukes, baby. Yeah. What you mean, man? <laughs> man, I'm really close to my mom. I talk to my mom every day. Yeah. I, don't, I, I don't get to see my mom often because my mom lives in Arizona. Yeah. Uh, she moved to Arizona maybe about maybe about three or four years ago, maybe five years ago now. I'm going to um, so uh, I don't get to see her as often, but I talk to her almost every day, yeah. you know, and so that's, that says anything about our relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, talk, yeah. I talk to my mom every day, and my mom's getting close to retirement, and she's thinking about Vegas or uh, Phoenix. I'm and like, she needs somewhere warm, Doc. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's, like, I, she's been in Chicago for, because my mom was born in Mississippi, so she came up, like, mm-hmm. and... She, it was a culture shock because she used to walk around with no shoes on. And they used to talk about it like, why are you not wearing any shoes or walking on concrete? Yeah, that's a horrible story in the inner city, Doc. I don't know about that. Yeah. So eventually she started wearing shoes, but now like she's getting close to retirement age. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I need to move somewhere more in these winters. They just not hit like this. Like this. That's the same reason my mom moved. My mom was, uh, she retired. You know, my mom has, you know, a bunch of different health issues and stuff. And yeah. It's just healthier for her actually to live out in Arizona. She can navigate that space so much better yeah. than she does when she's out this way. Because actually, every time she comes here, she gets sick. You know, so we always send her home. <laughs> like, it, was, it was nice talking to you, but we want you healthy, so get back on that plane. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's, so you, 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 you're homeschooled for a year. You, you, Fell in love with like music right now. Yes, so tell me about like how you transitioned like to being a teenager in high school, like using what you learned there. Because high school years, that's a that's important years for people. <laughs> like, transitioning through yeah. high school, yeah. what, what you want to know? Let's talk about this. Let's, let's go through the whole game. like starting off and Oof. then transitioning out. <laughs> Oof, man. So high school is something else, man. Um, and I don't know what Indianapolis like high schools. Like how does that work? Like is it like like neighborhoods yeah. or are you just like? I could talk about a little bit of that because my high school situation is a little bit different. Okay. Um, so I actually start from middle school and work up actually. Then. Okay. Um, because um, so eventually in middle school I ended up going to the school called um, I got introduced to the charter system. Uh-huh. Uh, and I went to the school called Twenty First Century Charter. Uh, well, actually before that I went to Charles A. Tinley uh, Charter School. We went there for a little bit, and then um, when my dad got out of prison, he got out of prison that year. And uh, so we, uh, they let me take my test early and stuff and to uh, let me go home early for the year uh, so that I could spend some more time with my dad okay. since he was just getting out. Because uh, you know, black people running this school. Yeah, okay. All black folks running this school. Mostly, most of them were, you know, old Greeks. They all, you know, were uh, involved in different Greek organizations. And my mom's uh, Delta, she's part of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of Deltas and stuff went to that school, worked at the school, and uh, principals Kappa, so. Uh, at any rate, you know, won't hold mom, that against them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I won't. I won't hold that against them. You know, now Mr. Marcus Robinson changed my life. I never forget that man. You know, but uh, now they let me go home early to spend time with my dad from my dad getting out of prison. So we went home and I spent that time with my dad for a little bit. Got to, you know, just get to know him more. You know, and then uh, so the school year started the next year, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I started going to this school called Twenty First Century Charter School. And I laughed because so my dad actually ended up getting a job, which is crazy, you know, for a felon to get a job working at a school. 
you well, know, fresh out of prison, right? Fresh out of prison, working out of school. That's a that's 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 pretty good. Uh, but my dad got a job just as being an assistant band teacher at the school. My dad's a, my dad was a musician. Uh, my dad uh, played uh, played horn instruments primarily. Uh, was a trombonist. Uh, could play trumpet. A bunch of other a different brass. Yeah, yeah. He was a uh, he was he did all of that. And, uh, he could write charts and uh, he also played bass. Um, yeah, my dad got a job being assistant band director at the school, so naturally he wanted me to get involved in band. He knew I was into music, so I got involved in band. Started playing sousaphone. I hated it because I found out I was allergic to brass, <laughs> and uh, so my lips would break out every day. And it was horrible. I'd be like, Dad, I'm done. I can't do this. He my boy, quit crying on a crumb, boy. Get your ass out of the field. <laughs> oh boy, go get on out there, boy. My dad's a country man. You know? so, hey, boy, get your ass on out there, boy. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. Just go. Go like that. <laughs> yeah, you, you make me. I'm, I'm here. I love my relatives right now. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so I was fed up with that. Is, is what the story was on that. I was fed up with the school. I hated it. Um, I liked the kids that I spent. I spent you know, great time spending time with the kids at the school. Made some good friends, uh, but I didn't like the way education was taught at the school. I didn't feel like it was fitting my needs. Mm -hmm. uh, so I decided for myself that I wasn't going to be there any longer. Mm -hmm. And that was just that was the you know the greatest thing about living in my household is that we got to make decisions for ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said I'm not going there anymore. And I told my mom I said, hey, you know, I think I want to go to uh, Bri Ripple High School. Uh, she was like, okay, well, cool. Let's see if we can, you know, we'll see what we can do. So I ended up, um, ended up uh, applying to the magnet program, and the magnet program basically was a, uh, they were a school, a, a performing arts school, mm -hmm. and at the time they were transitioning into fully being only a performing arts school. Uh, so the first year I went, actually, uh, they were just a public school. Mm -hmm. um, I actually lived outside the district. Uh, so I wasn't supposed to be going there, <laughs> but I ended up getting in because I got into their magnet program for music. Okay. Uh, so they let me in anyways. It's you know, and then I got grandfathered in. You know, of course, when they started going to the performing arts, you know, they became a fully performing arts school. Mm -hmm. um, so high school was uh, <laughs> since we're here now. Yeah. Uh, high school was like I hated high school, bro. <laughs> High school was the worst time of my life. It's the awkwardest time of my life. I hated high school, man. Um, in terms of school, I hated high school. Uh, I didn't have a lot of friends. I got teased a lot uh, because I dressed just very different. <laughs> I just I dressed very different. Um, I didn't have like the nicest shoes or whatever. You know, so I would get made fun of because of my shoes sometimes. Oh, man, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't have come to my high school. My high school was like a, <laughs> they had like a fashion show every year mm -hmm. and, they had, and they had like people like bringing people to perform they had like but one year we had like Jagged Edge like Ooh. had Drew Hill come in Ooh. that's how like so you had to be on point and plus it was like it was, it was in the neighborhood in Chicago where Obama lives so oh okay well yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> nah man uh, Ripple was uh, wasn't all that yeah. uh, <laughs> of course we did have some we had some nice people you know come through there um, none that I can remember the names of, really, but uh, yeah. we had some people come through there at some points. Um, but, you know, high school was horrible, man. Uh, <laughs> but that only lasted for a year, though. Oh, you they only, now, the, the part teasing me about how I dressed, that only happened for a year. <laughs> you know, because after that first year, uh, I remember the school superintendent, IPS at that time, uh, Eugene White, Dr. Eugene White. 
He ended up changing the whole entire system, uh, wanted the system to reflect this like Chinese model of uh, dressing. So they, all the students started wearing um, uniforms. Oh, yeah. Oh, so we went to uniforms <laughs> and we started wearing polos and, uh, and uh, you know, khakis every uh, day. With the best buy outfit. Oh, yeah, 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 doc. You know, I had on the Walmart special, baby. You know, cats came to school with the Dickies on, bro. Wearing them Dicky suits, man. <laughs> <laughs> the Dicky suits, bro. Yeah, bro. Catch just come up with them Dickies. Now nah, they started. They started banning the Dicky suits after a while. But uh, yeah, no, nah, they started coming to school with the Dicky suits on, man. The Dicky polos, all of that, dude. It was it was crazy, man. I remember I would just buy these. Um, I had two pairs of shoes at first. I would get a pair of cross trainers from Walmart, and I would get a pair of uh, Walmart boots. Uh, Walmart boots are those joints. Uh, I still buy them to this day, actually. They're like wheat, and you know what I'm saying? They last you only for one winter. Yeah. You don't wear them after, after one winter, they're done. You can't wear them <laughs> after that. They last you for a good winter, and then they're done. You put them to the side. Uh, and that happened up until up until my, my brother-in-law started playing professional football at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he started playing professional football, my sister, uh, my sister Shakia's husband, his name is Brandon Johnson, uh, when he started playing football, he started giving me some of his stuff. So, <laughs> I, I got a little bit of swag, you know, later on in the game in high school, you know, he started, I was wearing, but I had some actually pretty expensive shoes, I was wearing Porsches and Jordans at that point, I'm wearing all the nice stuff, Bapes, and because Bapes, Bape and Bapes were hot then, you know, uh, Timberlands. Yeah, I so, remember, I saw I used to wear Timberlands, I used to, actually I was kind of older, I used to always wear like leather jackets and Leather jackets. Yeah, I was like the king of leather. I was, See, I, I was, like, I was, a, I was a husky kid, Brandon. I couldn't, I was husky. I couldn't, I couldn't pop out in the leather, you know. Uh, I was, but I had cashmere. Yeah, I was like, I'm like in high school, I was super skinny. I'm like, you see what I am now? I'm, I'm imagine this. Take off like 25, almost 30 pounds. That's how Oof. I was in high school. Doc, you was about to blow away in the wind, Doc. Yes. <laughs> Golly, man. But, you know, outside of actually the school experience, you know, because like I said, school was just horrible. I hated yeah. school. Yeah. Uh, but outside of school, um, you know, it was it was rough, man. I tell you that, you know, because, you know, uh, with my dad, it was just, whew, living with him was rough. You know, he just got out of prison. Uh, my dad was also a war veteran, Desert Storm War. And my dad had PTSD. Uh, he was also bipolar. Um, so he had everything so, coming at once with him. Yeah, so you know, it was, you know, my dad really went through a lot mentally, man, and, and also physically. He was also a type 2 diabetic, you know, so he, you know, he had a torn rotator cup. So he, he went through a lot, man. And uh, so, you know, of course, you know, it was always a lot of frustration, you know, a lot of just different things we had to deal with in terms of just his out, you know, his outbreak sometimes, he would just get frustrated, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't know, man, it was just, it was a hard time, man, I just put it that way, it was mm -hmm. a hard time, um, and then outside of that, economically, of course, you know, although both my parents, you know, had jobs, it was still very poor, like, mm -hmm. you know, growing up, you know, it was funny, I didn't know I was poor until I came to college, mm -hmm. I had no idea I was poor until I came, I thought I was middle class. I really did. I thought I was middle class. I was like, man, we like lower middle class, but we doing we all there. right. We there. <laughs> we we at the coast, but we, we made it I didn't I didn't realize, you know, I'm coming from a household that really only pulled in like twenty thousand dollars or less a year. You know, maybe seventeen thousand dollars a year sometimes. So that's nothing when your rent is like nine hundred dollars a month. You know, of course we have section eight housing. Mm 
you know, which helped a lot. Yeah. You know, but the bills, you know, I remember there was times when we, you know, went without heat. Yeah. Times when we went without water. Lord, that was a horrible time. But, you know, a time, I remember, I remember once, I remember one winter we went without heat for, a, man, like a month. And uh, I remember we had to. Was it a, was it a rough one or was it like. Oh, we gonna, we gonna, we can, we can. Bro, I lived in Indianapolis, Indiana. Like, uh -huh. yes, it's always a rough runner. <laughs> like, oh, no, you know, I'm coming from it's just Chicago. Like, bro, but we just down the road from you. Yeah, now, so still, of course, y'all living off the lake. So yeah, it's a little that's bit different. Saying, like, yeah, now y'all got cold, cold. We got, we got that like, lake effect snow and mm -hmm. like that wind chill that make you, you walk outside and you like, death might be better. <laughs> Look, hey man, but Doc, it was, I mean, you know, it was. Yeah, but I know, it's still, it's still yeah, Midwest. It was, so. it was still frigid, man. Still, you know getting down to the negatives, yeah. you know, outside. i never forget that, dude. I remember going downstairs to try to warm up bowls of water for my mom yeah. so that I could dump the bowls of water into the bathtub and I had to do it really fast yeah. just so the water could stay warm so she could take a bath. Yeah. And, I, dude, i never forget that winter. And, I, and I, it made me rethink, you know, just how I perceive people around me, too. Cause I was just like, why is nobody helping us? Yeah. I was like, we go to a church where people have a little bit of money. Like, why is nobody helping us? Like helping us out, they know that something's going on. Like nobody's helping us out though. Like there was no like you know, church ministry. Like man, if you have a problem with this, and you know we got this ministry, there was nothing like that. No, no. I mean it was a smaller church, but even still, it was just yeah. like why is nobody helping us? And you know, it's at that moment, at that day, where I I learned something. And my dad actually told me this later on in life when he actually got out of prison. You know, he was just like, look, you can't depend on anybody but yourself and your family. That's what you got. You know, outside of that, you know, you cannot, he used to say, don't trust no nigga. <laughs> that was his quote. Don't trust no nigga for nothing. Not nothing. You know, so he, one of the things that he did for us especially was talk, to be self-sufficient. You know, uh, when we got out, because my mom, she did her best, but man, my dad really taught my sister and I how to be self-sufficient, how to fix cars, you know, how to make sure we pay our bills and how to work hustles, you know, on the side to make sure that we could, you know, make ends meet when we need to. You know, he taught us how to survive. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, that's, that's dope, man. So, out of, out of this, uh, wow, this is like traumatic high school experience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only getting to a piece of it. it you, know, you don't want you don't want to go into my counseling sessions. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I might want to interview again, so we might have okay. to stay up part Most two. deaf, man. Most deaf. <laughs> So, uh, okay, let's talk about, okay, you transferred from, when did you uh, graduate from high school? I graduated from high school in 2011. 2011, wow. You make me feel really old. <laughs> Way older than you. <laughs> hey, man. I'm uh, a young cat, man. I think, I think that 2011, that's, I think that's when my sister graduated from high school, too. So, hey, yeah, you, you young cats. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. You don't know about that. You're about the mean 90s. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. We had the nice nineties. Yeah, we had the we, mean nineties. Whatever. We were still Prince nineteen ninety nine though. Yeah, you know, we still got that. We still got that. You know that shock. Yeah, y'all know about the early nineties where they always had those. Uh, every every like sitcom had that special about being in the hood, stay away from guns and gangs. Bro, I was I was around during that time still. No, it was, no <laughs> I didn't no, get to see them live. Yeah, but. yeah, we see them live. And <laughs> they do like a, a thirty minute post show where they where they where they like they get out of character, but like you know. So-and-so needs to stop shooting, man. Just put down the gun, son. Put down the gun. I've like, seen that episode of Family Matters. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, man, nobody's trying to steal me from my starter jacket. Because, one, I can't afford a starter jacket. 
Without, without, without. Okay, you graduated in 2011 and you trans transitioned to the the Indiana University. Blues. Oh yes, yeah, yes, yes sir, yes sir. Okay, tell me about that transition. This, this is when you found out you was like, man, we are. I am poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I got here, man, I tell you that. I tell you when I got here, dude, it was a shock, man, because I'm seeing cats riding around in Lamborghinis. I didn't even know what a Lamborghini was. Cats ride. I didn't even know what a Maserati. I heard of Maseratis, but I never seen one. Yeah. So I'm seeing these cats ride around in Maseratis, Lamborghinis, all kind of crazy stuff. Then I'm seeing the actual middle class folks. <laughs> this is when I met the real middle class folks and the black ones too, not just the white ones. It wasn't a race thing, you know. I learned it wasn't a race thing. It was just, it just was, it was, you know, classism, man. You know, it just I could see how, you know, some of the the benefits. That uh, particularly the middle class, you know, black folks, even the ones that came from Indianapolis that went to some of the better schools, you know, in, in the area, I could see how how their education was so much different than mine. You know, I could see how much they knew and how much of a leg up that they had more than I had. You know, so you know, coming here, being become, you know, being poor. I had to really, and because of the lack of education that I got from my high school, which no offense, I love my high school and I love my teachers. You know, they were great people, but there was so much that I didn't know when I got here. You know, I spent a lot of time trying to backtrack, trying to relearn and re-educate myself about everything from English to math to, you know, so many different subjects, man. I, I remember so many classes that I failed early in undergrad just because I... I just didn't understand the subjects like finite math here oh my god <laughs> I took that class like six or seven times dude okay. Okay. I took that class all the way up until my master's degree bro even though like you know I'm of course I'm not a math major but uh -huh. I always did well in math because my dad was an accountant so I learned math actually the thing with my family that's kind of like similar to yours but I had like I think I always think uh, use my family as I had two families. Mm -hmm. Like my dad's side of the family was the Cosby Show. This Ooh. is everyone. They, everyone is educated. Everyone has their solidly middle class on the side. And my mom's side of the family, that's good times. We're all broke. <laughs> <laughs> We're all struggling to survive. <laughs> Keep <laughs> so, me your hand in the water. <laughs> basically, so like when I go to that's how I was like that's how I was able to manage my undergrad because I always, I had that back. I could fall back on my Cosby family, uh, even though I spent most of my time in good times, you know, trying to figure out yeah. where the lights going to get turned back off. <laughs> hey, no, trust me, I, I understand what that's kind of like, too. I, didn't, I don't know if I had a Cosby family, but uh, a great deal of my family actually have college degrees, though, especially on my mom. Actually, my mom and my dad's side. Uh, my mom has like a bunch of brothers and sisters, like maybe 20 or something like that. Uh, so like, and a lot of them have college degrees. Uh, and then my dad had two brothers. I know uh, at least one of them has a, has a master's degree. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, my uncle Rob, he passed away when I was in undergrad early, so I didn't really know what his college uh, experience was like or if he even went to college. I'm not really sure. I know that he was a sheriff for a long time mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, but uh, at any rate, um, yeah, no, um, I understand what you mean, you know, by uh, Cosmic situation just because of my sister and my brother-in-law because you know like when say they just playing professional football so they had money so <laughs> you know and so you know a lot of like I said you know a lot of you know that's why another reason why we call her my, my second mom not because of the money but just because she would take care of us in a lot of different ways my, my sister ended up having to pay having to pay bills for our household a lot of the time you know she ended up having to take on a lot of responsibilities that weren't hers 
you know, uh, because member of the family, <laughs> you know, and, and particularly for my sister and myself, my other sister and for me, because we were so young, it's just like, well, we can't have my brother and sister out here without water, without, mm-hmm. you know, without lights, mm-hmm. you know, somebody's got to do it, so. <laughs> yeah. Right. But yeah, uh, back, college. Back to IU. Uh, yeah, back to, back to good old life, IU, man. Outside of, you know. Oh, man, college <laughs> life was so fun. Nah, hey, <laughs> no, nah, I remember under, so undergrad, man, was, was so much fun, dude, man. I just, I came here, so I came to IU actually two ways. Two ways to discuss to me coming to IU. I came here uh, as a result of a program I went to uh, during the summertime each year called Camp Soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, camp Soul is a music camp founded actually by Dr. Tyron Cooper. Um, and that camp has thrived. He founded the camp back in 2006. Uh, and the camp has thrived since then and brought me here to IU. Um, and once I got here, I actually started getting mentored by Dr. Tyron Cooper. And I'm actually, he's actually my mentor, my advisor, and my boss to this day. So, uh, but yeah, undergrad, man, I tell you what, Doc, I had a lot of fun just being here, learning about myself, uh, learning about life outside of where I was from, you know, learning about the world uh, broadly without, you know, without parameters. I just got to see so many different types of people because I wasn't just around black folks and I didn't yeah. just have black friends when I got here. That's what I was used to. You know, back at home, I only hung with black folks. I didn't talk yeah. to white folks and all that like that. You don't want them in your business. Yeah. <laughs> when I came here, I, you know, I had white friends. I had Indian friends. I had Asian friends. I had a Latino crew. You know, I had LGBTQIA friends. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I had all so many different types of friend groups and different types of people that I was exposed to. I had agnostic friends. I had church friends. I had Buddhist friends. You know, just a wide gamut of just people that I got to get exposed to when I got here. So it changed my whole entire perspective, really, about life and about the way I wanted to live my life. Okay, so talk about your how you continued your musical Mm. education career at IU because I know you were very involved yeah. <laughs> in music on this campus. <laughs> yeah, so actually that goes back to Camp Soul, man. Yeah. Oh, is Camp know? Soul, one question, is Camp Soul still going on? Yeah. It's still going on? Yeah, I've, I've, actually, I've actually been the uh, rhythm coach for Camp Soul for the last, I think, three years now. Okay. Uh, it's directed by uh, one of Dr., another one of Dr. Cooper's students, so his name is Ignacio Miles, mm-hmm. who uh, just received or is uh, getting ready to receive his master's degree actually from African-American and African diaspora studies here. Um, but yeah, no, uh, actually it starts back from there, man. Uh, Camp Soul was uh, somewhat almost like a training program. Not not directly, but somewhat of like a training program for another program, for another cla- a course here actually at IU that's taught um, in the Department of, uh, well actually in the um, African-American Arts Institute program. Uh, and uh, that class is called the IU Soul Review. And uh, I remember, man, being a kid, and that was everything to me. Mm-hmm. Seeing the Soul Review and seeing them perform on stage, just seeing them just live. It was live music, and it was the music that I loved. Mm-hmm. You know, they were playing Jill Scott, man. They were <laughs> playing, you know, they were playing uh, Erica. They were playing Maxwell. They were playing uh, Al Green. I oh, mean, you, like, oh, you, you're touching my soul right hey, now, man. Hey, <laughs> man, I'm trying to tell you, man, it was like the best plate of food you've ever seen, man, but with music. Like... <laughs> You know, it, it was everything. So I wanted to be a part of that so bad. So I was just like, I've got to go to school here. Mm-hmm. I was like, because if I go to school here, I could be a part of that. That's, that's what I want to do. So 
I ended up, you know, getting into school here through uh, this program called the uh, Groups Program. Mm -hmm. uh, the Groups Program traditionally has brought, you know, um, students uh, who have, who like myself, who have poor backgrounds. Or, I, I hate using that word, poor. Uh, but uh, um, underprivileged, yeah, maybe underprivileged, underprivileged backgrounds. But yeah. uh, basically, basically they they bring in kids from the hood, yeah. uh, <laughs> both both brown kids and black kids, uh, sometimes white kids too. Um, they bring them here. Uh, most of these kids are students who couldn't afford to go to college otherwise. Also, they were students who wouldn't get into an institution like IU, which is incredibly difficult actually to get into. Yeah. Uh, I remember applying for the school and not getting in. I had a 3.5 GPA in high school. I didn't get in the school here. They put me on wait list. Not, not yeah. good enough, brother. Not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> but I got in actually through the, through the groups program. Um, but so because I participated in the groups program, I ended up coming back in the fall from the groups program here. And I was able to audition for the IU so Review, baby. Right. And I remember, was the, I remember that audition. I was so nervous. But I knew I was gonna get in. I knew I was going in because I knew the uh, I knew the instruct one of the instructors. His name was Terrence Denton, mm -hmm. and uh, Terrence I actually grown up watching Terrence play, mm -hmm. so I knew him. I knew he was. I knew I was gonna get in, and I got in, dude. And you know, <laughs> the next thing I know, my whole life changed. Right. Played in the IU Soul Review for the next five years. Right. Um, the first couple years under uh, this guy named Nathaniel Maluli, Professor Nathaniel Maluli. Uh, the second year under. Um, Dr. Charles Sykes, and then I ended up hooking back up with my good mentor, um, and now advisor and boss, Tyron, Dr. Tyron Cooper, uh, which completely changed my life, you know. And I've I played I played up until now since then, you know. Being a part of the ISO review opened up a lot of doors for me. Uh, it led me actually to the degree I got in undergrad actually. Uh, the founder of the ISO review is her name is Dr. Portia Maltzby, ethnomusicologist. And I took a class with her my freshman year. And I'll never forget this. I'm, I was a psychology major when I got here. Psychology okay. major. Okay, what um, made, you, made you choose psychology? I chose psychology because I thought it'd make me some money. Okay, you thought you were going to be like a psychologist. Yeah, I thought, I thought, I didn't know, I didn't actually want to do it. I just thought it was, I thought it was a degree that could help me make some money. Yeah. But then I started learning about how, you know, in order to make money in the field of psychology, you actually had to go to a grad program, yeah. and then you actually had to apply to a job. So I actually learned about what college was, is yeah. what happens. <laughs> Uh, and I just, I was asleep on it, you know. I was getting good grades in their, in their program, but I just, I was asleep on it. So I took a class with Dr. Portia Maltzby. I think it was, uh, I, think, I can't remember the name of the course, but I uh, took this class with her, man, and she pulled me aside after class one day towards the end of the semester, and she said, what do you study, young man? I said, I'm a psych major. She's like, do you like that? I was like, I mean, it's all right. She's like, you don't study that no more. She's like, I need you to go see Dr. Melanie Burnham. You're gonna start studying ethnomusicology. That's what she told me. <laughs> yep, she said you need to be in ethnomusicology. She's like, you need to go see her. You go make an appointment with her next week. You go see Dr. Melanie Burnham. So I went to go. I ended up hooking up with Dr. Melanie Burnham, man, and I ended up getting into the folklore and ethnomusicology program here at IU. And Doc, it changed my life, man. It's just another life-changing moments, man. That's what I study. It's a part of what I study now. Uh, even as a even as a black studies scholar, you know, I still use a lot of my um, training that I learned in ethnomusicology. Um, but yeah, that was a big part of music for me, and on the academic side, right? Now, 
um, in terms of my career, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what we want to call it. Yeah. I, I got to do some pretty amazing things as a result of being a part of the IUSO Review and actually just being here at IU. Um, I got to play for After Seven one year. If you don't know who After yeah. Seven is, yeah. Uh, yeah. The the song. Yeah, 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 man. So we got to play with them one year. That was just an amazing performance. It's actually on YouTube. If you type in IUSO Review 2014, great performance. Uh, but later on, uh, I got to work for the IUSO Review, um, and I was actually working under the director. His name is James Strong, and uh, working with the SO Review, I ended up uh, actually getting a gig playing with Bootsy Collins, okay, cool. and I got to play for Bootsy Collins for about a year or so. What was that like? It was great, man. It was amazing, man. It was Bootsy, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it was Bootsy, baby, baby, bubba. <laughs> Did, did, you, did you have to like wear a costume like when you perform with them? Hey, that's like, interesting, man. It's interesting, right? Because you know, I mean, you know, as, as someone who studies music, I always consider anything that you wear on stage actually a costume because okay. you're always performing, so you always have to wear something something that aesthetically pleases the eye yeah. of the the folks. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you you know, you talking about you know performing with someone like Bootsy, of course, yeah. you gotta you gotta do it upright. <laughs> yeah. You gotta do it upright, baby. So yeah, I, I remember the, the most craziest thing I probably wore with him is that I still have this mask. I actually, I had a Darth Vader mask. <laughs> and I wore it during the show. We did a show out in L.A. Uh, it was the first show I ever did with him, actually. And uh, so we did this show out in L.A., man, and I had grand performances out there. And uh, so I had this Darth Vader mask. <laughs> Dude, I could barely breathe in it. <laughs> so you were sounding like Darth Vader. <laughs> oh, Doc, I'm trying to tell you, man. It, but, it was, but I had so much fun, man, doing that gig. It was probably one of the best moments of my life, dude. But yeah, I got to I got to play with him for about a year, man. Doing doing a couple things here and there for him, whether it was playing gigs or doing some production work on the side every now and then. He let me kind of throw in my two cents on a couple tracks and stuff, which was just I mean, an amazing opportunity, you know, that I'll never take for granted in my life. Uh, and you know, just actually just fostered a pretty decent, you know, just a good um, we call them political friendships. Yeah. You know, we call them good political friendships, meaning that, you know, because he's so much older than me, I don't ever consider older people to be my friends. Yeah. I consider them to be mentors, and I consider yeah. them to be who they are. I, don't, I never consider them as friends just because I think that's inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, but I say that we foster a great political friendship, meaning that yeah. a great working relationship. Yeah. Um, so he's still a great political friend to this day. Yeah. I know you talked about one time that you, you, know, you had to travel overseas. Oh, what, yeah. What was that like? Yeah, I got to go to Germany, man. Yeah, I spent some time. I toured in Germany for yeah. a little bit with uh, with uh, Dr. Raymond Wise yeah. and the African American Core Ensemble. It's a great, it's a great. I've heard them; they are fantastic. Yeah, man, it's, it's, it's it is a it is a very. It's also another class here that's a part of the uh, African American Arts Institute program. Um, but uh, yeah, amazing, man. It's one of the best moments of my life. So you know, flashback. Um, I'd never been to Germany. But uh, my family, everybody in my family had been to Germany except me, actually. My dad was stationed in Germany during the Desert Storm War. Uh, so my mom was also over there with him. And my older sister was over there with him. And my younger, not my younger sister, but my uh, sister who's younger, uh, she was born there. You know, so everybody had been there except for me. So it was almost like a pilgrimage. You know, going to Germany. Man, I had the greatest time of my life out there. We toured. Let's see. Where we play? We played Hamburg, um, Munich, Leipzig, uh, some other places in Bavaria, uh, just all over, man, Germany. 
and uh, mostly performing spirituals. We perform spirituals and uh, some gospel music, some popular music. Uh, it was just a great time, man. Got to had some diverse audiences. It was a part of a it was a part of a big music festival called Musica International. And uh, so we, that's why we traveled so much, because con- this festival is happening literally all over Germany. So it's a great time. I got introduced to Absinthe out there. <laughs> uh, okay. One time when I was in undergrad, that's because a friend of mine, he was uh, Czech. Mm-hmm. And he was, his family was like loaded. So he uh-huh. could always get, this is before. Did he, sm- was, he smuggled some real Absinthe over? over? Yeah. yeah. So he, this is this was before it became legal in the states. So uh, be, so now everybody knows how old I am. <laughs> but yeah, and I took that. And if you ever saw the movie like Euro Trip when they took Absinthe and they just start seeing stuff, mm-hmm. that's exactly what I, I was just like. Why is that wall moving? Bruh, <laughs> I started seeing purple dinosaurs, man. Real talk, I saw purple dinosaurs. Like I saw these purple spots moving, and then they became dinosaurs, and then everything else in this world. And so it's like, it's like the best high of your life yeah. without actually smoking. Yeah, like <laughs> that's what it's like. <laughs> yeah, but you know, outside of praising God's name, because we was on a gospel trip. <laughs> okay, how how were they receptive to uh, gospel music, which is an African American foundation? And you're in Germany, which uh, is, you know, you know yeah. the history of Germany. Yeah, <laughs> man. So very complicated. <laughs> the reception of I, I won't just say the reception of gospel music because we didn't only perform gospel well, this, music. This is a, you know, all the music. Yeah, you know, I, I'd say the, the the reception of the music is. I mean, what do you? It's pretty much the way you would expect white yeah. folks to, you know, respond to the music here in the states okay. who haven't been exposed to those forms of black popular music or gospel music and other religious pieces. Mm-hmm. They respond in the same ways overseas, actually. Okay. And, uh, so, and what I mean by that is, is that, you know, they're, how do I explain it? I would never want to call the response inappropriate because it's only inappropriate, something can only be inappropriate in my opinion when someone is knowing of the action that is wrong, you know. So it's just an unknowing type of response. Yes. So, you know, the the greatest thing about it is that the people got up and they danced and they had a great time, right? Mm -hmm. And that was great. But see, music, uh, particularly the music that we were were performing, those pieces are, are about much more than just having a great time. Yeah. You know, uh, some of the pieces that we performed, I mean, golly, like they're, you know, those pieces are deep and they're profound. Yeah. You know, so and while, we, while we have a great time partying and enjoying sometimes, we also have to be cognizant of why we're partying. Why we have to be cognizant of why why it is that we're celebrating. See, they're just responding to the music, but for us, it's an actual ex- lived experience yeah. that we are performing. Yeah. You know, it's not you know just us you know working on automatic. It is a lived experience that we're performing when we're responding to songs like "Ooh Child," things are going to get easier. Yeah. You know, when we're responding to uh, those songs with those scriptures in it, like uh, we performed a song, a song called uh, Psalms 115. Uh, those songs, they have meaning for us yeah. because they're a part of our life story. Yeah. So what it means for them to listen to this music and respond to it in a way is 
you know, it's, it's what you would expect, you know, particularly from seeing the response that you get in the States from people who live outside of that culture, uh, particularly black church culture, you know, or black culture, period, because we also performed a lot of popular music. Uh, and even if you don't go to church in a black community, you understand like, some of the politics and the ideas yeah. around, you know, the black church, because those people are right there in the community. So they experience, they hurt, they, they, they go through just like anybody else does in the community, yeah. you know. So when you live outside of that community and you try to listen to that music and try to dance to that music and you try to respond to that music, you don't know what it is. You don't understand, you know, what it took to, you know, bring these people to this point to be able to create these pieces. Yeah. Um, so the response sometimes can be inappropriate. Okay. You know, I wouldn't call their dancing and their responding to be inappropriate, but I think what's inappropriate sometimes is when these people go back and try to make and recreate this music yeah. or try to make and recreate the experiences, particularly when you're talking about spirituality, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, worship. Particularly, you know, I think it's James Cone who wrote in a book of God of the Oppressed. He talks about how there's a difference between black worship and white worship, right? Yeah. You know, it's, and it all comes down to the experiences of these two different people, right? It's the same thing happened in Germany when these black, this black choir is coming over to see all these black songs while these white folks are, you know, participating and worshiping in this different way, trying to respond in the ways that they've seen black people traditionally respond to popular music. Yeah. But it's inappropriate. Yeah. They don't, so because they don't understand the music. Yeah. So is there like a company with performance, is there like an education piece that comes like this is what we perform, yeah. but this is like the background, this is why we perform it, this is why mm -hmm. we do it this way, this is why when you hear this, this is the appropriate response. Right, yeah, you know, and, and, and that's one of the great things about, you know, Dr. Wise when he's, he's doing yeah, clinics. He's, he's excellent, he is, his mind is just full of this knowledge of this. Yes. It's one, of, it's one of the one of the great things about Dr. Wise when he's doing clinics is he tries to uh, create a framework, yeah. you know, while while the music is going on, uh, to help people to get a brief or a small understanding at least of what is happening, right? So he's informing them about. Um, the the you know this experience this black experience you know he's informing them about you know what were the issues that led to these different pieces that we're singing particularly with the spirituals mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them being negro spirituals so a lot of them they're not stemming from slavery necessarily because uh, most of the spirituals that we were performing were concert spirituals mm -hmm. but a lot of them were based on some of those songs that would would have been sung in the field mm -hmm. but just of course in this arranged style so. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, that's one of the greatest things about Dr. Wise. He's, he's good at, um, I think the word is, um, that's been made up is edutain. That's the word you heard on Drumline a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, edu edutaining. Yeah. Maybe you educate, but you also entertain. Yeah. So. All right. All right, so like you, you've done all this great work with music, again, mm -hmm. ethnomusicology. How did you transition to AAADS? People don't know AAADS. It's African American, African Diaspora Studies at mm -hmm. Indiana University. Right. So that transition was uh, from undergrad to my master's program. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if I'm being transparent in the story, <laughs> being, transparent, being transparent in the story. So actually, uh, I wanted to get my master's in folklore and ethnomusicology. That's what I originally wanted to get my master's in. But the problem with that was I already had an undergraduate degree in folklore and ethnomusicology. Yeah. That's what I graduated with. Yeah. 
it made no sense for me to continue, mm-hmm. you know, because I would have learned a lot of the same things. Yeah. And, and of course, job market wise, it made no sense. It's just like, well, yeah. you got your undergrad in folklore and ethnomusicology. Mm-hmm. Now you have another degree in ethnomusicology. Then you're probably going to try to get your PhD in ethnomusicology. Right. What's happening here? So I had to go back and rethink. And my mentor actually, you know, helped he helped me a lot. Dr. Tyrone Cooper, he helped me a lot with this. He was just like, you need to really kind of rethink what it is that you're actually doing with your study. Mm-hmm. What, did, what are you actually looking? But I'm actually more into when I found out what I'm actually more interested in beyond just studying music, which I'm not necessarily interested in just focusing on music or focusing on, you know, the theory of music or anything. I'm more interested in studying black life. Yeah. You know, I'm more interested in studying black folks as they experience music, as they, you know, participate in this musical experience or use music within their culture to express themselves, you know. So I said, I can do that in black studies. You know, and that's what I do to this day, of course, now, uh, as I've gotten a little bit older as a scholar, I guess, uh, as I've, you know, spent so many years in this program at this point, you know, the way that I think uh, about what I do now is a lot different from when I started out my master's. In my master's, I was just like, I gotta do music. You know, I was just like, if it's not ethnomusicology, I don't want it. <laughs> but as I grew as a scholar, man, I just, I learned so much about black people. I learned so much about black folks, as particularly as it related to my research already. I was just like, oh, I really am situated in black studies. This is really what I'm doing right mm-hmm. now. It's just that my my focus in black studies is looking at black churches. Mm-hmm. You know, my focus in black studies is looking at black popular music and how it's informed the community, you know. So all right, so tell us a little bit about like some things that you've researched. You know, you don't have to give us too much because yeah. you know, in a few years, in a few years, we, you know, when Barnes and Noble, when we buy your book, well, a few years, <laughs> you can look at my look at my Vita online. Yeah, actually. we give us a little bit of what you've been researching. Yeah, so uh, my current research is actually. Uh, it's, well, it's multidisciplinary, mm-hmm. um, so um, my current research can, is considered both in black church studies, it's considered also in, of course, black studies, which is the program I'm in, um, but also it's ethnomusicology, um, and it's also anthropology, so it brings in all these different fields, but all to discuss, um, which is my main topic right now, is studying black church musicians. Uh, and my main focus in studying these black church musicians, I'm, I'm interested in learning what their role is in these churches and how that role informs what they do, how they navigate this space. Uh, particularly these instrumentalists being guys who perform both in churches and outside of churches. They perform in churches, but they also perform in nightclubs. What is that about? How do they navigate that space? How are they able to play both in a church and a nightclub, which is usually, you know, at least from my, you know, experience growing up, that's frowned upon, you know, but how are they able to navigate those spaces, yeah. you know, and then, you know, how are, how, when they're in this space and trying to participate in this role as an instrumentalist in these churches, what, what kind of things are expected of them, yeah. right? Um, being an instrumentalist myself who's played in churches for years as well, I understand that there are so many different parameters mm-hmm. that you have to deal with being a church musician, uh, particularly when you are playing for churches that are outside of the denomination that you may have grown up in. Mm-hmm. Um, I get faced with that all the time where I'm, I grew up in the Church of God in Christ, mm-hmm. uh, but I play across denominations. I play in a Baptist church, I play in an apostolic church, I play you know, in all these different denominations that are considered black churches. Mm-hmm. 
but you have to figure out as an instrumentalist, how do you navigate this space? How are you able to play in all these churches? So there's one of the things I've learned is that, you know, one of the things I've learned in my research recently is that there's a shared repertoire that these guys have. They understand, you know, a lot of these different songs that, you know, you hear both in the Baptist church, the Kojic church, the Apostolic church, so on and so forth, right? Outside of that, there's a specific way to dress when you come to these churches, right? So these guys come to these churches and they have to wear suits or they, some of these churches in these situations, they can dress down or, you know, it just depends upon what the event is or what the service is. Uh, but the main thing that you get from my research is that there's an understanding and it's almost this unspoken uh, uh, identity that these guys take on really, um, that they all understand. But if you're not in that circle, you don't understand, right? Yeah. You can't understand it because it's almost like a different, it's almost like a different culture within a culture, right? So that's my job as a researcher right now is to bring more understanding to this identity of who these church musicians are uh, and what their role is in these churches and how they navigate that. Oh, that's, that's great, that's great. So just to end off the Bobby story, if we, we haven't gone through all of it because we gonna do like we gotta probably do like part two, part three. It's <laughs> <laughs> a multifaceted brother here. <laughs> so, uh, what's what do you have going on in the just uh, near future? What's what's next for Bobby? Oh man, next is trying to get this PhD. What you mean, man? <laughs> that's the only focus right yeah. now, baby. Yeah, the only focus on. right now. That's I the think, game. I think what what do we have? We have into what? I know when I talked to. Uh, our, our graduate advisor now, uh, she said, she told me 2022, that's when. That's she when told me 2022 too. So we, yeah, uh, yeah. we, we, we out the same year. Yeah. We're the 22 <laughs> club right here. Yeah, yeah. 2022, we, we up out of here, yeah. Doc. I'm trying to tell you, that's yeah. spring. Yeah. That's spring. Oh, we have the big party, that, that's uh, spring, man. Look, I'm trying to tell you, man, we need to throw a big party. We're going to shut the city down, baby. All right, <laughs> All right. so for the, uh, for usually for like the next part of these interviews, I make it like the, the guest choice, people's choice. So okay. it's whatever you want to talk about, like any topic that's going on, you just want to ask me questions, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so impeachment, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with that. What do you think about that, man? What do you think well, about what's going on with that right now? Obviously, this man is very stupid. Mm. <laughs> he has no idea how any of this works. I don't think he wanted to actually have his job. I think what he really <laughs> wanted to do was just like, you know, run, lose really close, mm -hmm. complain about it, yep. and then like start like his own his own Trump news network. I think that was his goal. Mm. But then he won. He was just like, oh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do something. He was like, okay, whatever comes to his mind. He said, man, I gotta actually be president, president. He's <laughs> like, man, we gotta get this wall, we gotta do this. And then he's like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna negotiate it. Let me just call him, like, please, please, just mm -hmm. investigate these people. I need to keep this job. Mm -hmm. and, like, he's, he's stupid. And like, oh, but with the way the Senate's set up, they're obviously not gonna find him guilty because Republicans are cowards, so. I don't know, man. I, 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 I think there's hope, man. <laughs> I think there's hope, man. I think a lot of people are starting to kind of see the bullshit, man. But no, but I, I've learned, man, never put your faith in old white men. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you about how I felt that about that earlier, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, old white men are going old white men. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah, I mean, wait, I mean, if you really think about it, man, you know, 
one of the things I think you have to be considered of is whose president is Donald Trump, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he is not the normal voter's president. Mm -hmm. You know, and by normal voter, I'm referring to, you know, those pockets of people who a lot of times they're having to kind of, you know, convince to pull in, and, you know, who like, like they did, you know, particularly when Barack Obama got elected for president. Mm -hmm. You know, black folks, particularly the black vote, was a large part of the vote that yeah. year. Who's voting for Donald Trump? We have to think about that and be considered of whose president he is. Now, so, and so, you know, you might even say that, okay, well, he's the poor white folks president, right? Yeah. No, the, my, I, my I, least favorite yeah. of, the, of the white folks. Always had but, trouble out of them. But, you know, the way I think about that is, is I think that, they are, that he is the poor white folks' choice. Yeah. He's not their president. Yeah. Because what has he done to actually work in their favor? No, 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 no. I think Trump is the president of the high class. You know, and I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be Marxist here by any means, but I, I really consider him to be the president of the high class. He is ruling for those who've got. He is not in favor of the have-nots. You know, you know. So, 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 you know, when it comes to this idea of impeachment, we have to think about who are the ones who have the power to remove him from that oval. I ain't removing nobody who's getting me money. <laughs> I ain't removing nobody who's putting money in my pocket oh, and more abundantly. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, that just that's just not gonna happen, baby. You know, you know, it's just like, you know, it's just not gonna happen. You know, so I, so on one hand I'm like, yeah, I I, I still have hope. <laughs> I have hope for for a speedy removal, but at the same time, you know, and I don't actually, I, I actually often don't even delve into politics. I don't really do do a lot of politics anymore in my life. I used to early in my life. I did a lot of politics. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I originally wanted to be a politician. Oh, uh, that was, that yeah. was my, my undergrad degree is actually in political science. Oh, uh, okay. And actually, I worked for a congressman uh, mm. from Wisconsin, and you know, I did. I I fell out of love with politics. Actually, another thing, I used to watch Fox News all the time. Mm. I was like, all of it, like all day of it. Like, I was like a mini Republican. And then I, <laughs> <laughs> what the thing is, like, and I can always explain that, because if you, if you, because I used to watch a lot of, like, Nation of Islam stuff, mm -hmm. if, you, if you listen to the rhetoric, it's very, like, you take out the racial thing, mm -hmm. it's like a Republican platform. It's very bootstrap capitalism. Mm-hmm. So, like, so that's the kind of, like, you listen to that and then you watch Fox News, you're like, oh, yeah. And then you hit up talk about black people on Fox News. You're like, wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> We nasty about all that. <laughs> let's, keep, let's keep this at a very Marxist perspective and only discuss class as it relates to race, maybe, but. <laughs> then, then, then I, like, I got, I started reading more and I started, like, reading a lot of, like, Black Panther stuff. Mm -hmm. And I got, like, I got, I went, like, hard to the left. I'm like, man. This, man, we gotta we gotta read Das Kapital, man. Karl Marx said, Karl Marx knows where it is. Yep. <laughs> 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 but then I, I fell out, I fell out of love with politics, and I was just like, what do I really like? I'm like I like I like reading about and studying black people. Mm -hmm. So that's why that's why I'm here. But as far as impeachment now, like I know he can be impeached, but it's just I have a hard time trusting old white men. Mm -hmm. Which is the majority of the Senate, mm -hmm. unfortunately, even though it doesn't reflect America, and they they 
they never do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> but see, but see, see, I have a problem with that though. You know, I, I think, I, I, you know, when you say do the right thing, you know, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I, I question what is the right thing, right? Like, and right never, for who? You they, know, they never we, we do the be, right thing yeah. for the majority. They do the right thing for them. Mm -hmm. Keeping them in office is right for them. But they, they're old. They have very, very few years left on this earth. Why are they helping destroy it? <laughs> exactly. So the question is, so the, so, the, so then the broader question is, I think, and I think, with the, with the with, where you know, as voters, where mm -hmm. the focus should be is not on a president's office. Mm -hmm. The vote, I think, needs to be concerned about who are we sending to Washington. Mm -hmm. You know, who are these congressmen and women that we are mm -hmm. putting in these seats? You know, we need to know who these representatives are. And we need to be more investing in who these people are, mm -hmm. because we want to make sure as commu as communities as they're voting for these people, I think their concern should be is what are these folks' politics, yeah. you know how what wh what are their ideas, whether they're Republican or Democrat, you know I think that there should be a broader concern about what are these folks' politics before we just start voting people and putting them in, because yeah. I think a lot of what happens a lot of times is folks are just writing down on these scorecards, it's particularly millennials. Yeah. You know, millennials just get a score, they get their voting card and just write down whoever, because they don't know who yeah. anybody is but the president, mm -hmm. because that's the largest platform in the country. Yeah. They're going to see that news on Twitter and on Facebook and all of that, but when it comes to congressmen and women who are making a lot of these decisions, writing these bills that are going into yeah. federal law, yeah. <laughs> you know, and even on a state level as well, yeah. you know. The state level is, a lot of times, like, yeah, it's 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 way more important than anything on the national level because that's 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 where you live. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Your, your local and state laws dictate your life. Mm -hmm. if, if, if a few federal laws affect you, but mostly it's your state and local laws what's dictating your everyday life. Mm -hmm. And with, with the way people vote, this is what I always thought. We never the Americans have a have get to get rid of this whole individualistic attitude that we have, this American individualism. Mm -hmm. Like, we are, that's why there's such, that's why climate change is so important. Mm -hmm. That's why, like, housing and urban, my study, housing and urban development, there's no reason that people in San Francisco can make $116,000 and qualify as low income. Mm -hmm. That is, there's no reason that people can be homeless and have full-time jobs. There's no reason that California, there's no reason there should be so many homeless people in San Francisco and Los Angeles, two of the richest cities mm -hmm. in this country. And that's why I think when we vote things, we not, we're not thinking about the future and thinking about how it affects everyone. You think like, okay, Trump says he's going to make America great again. That's going to be good for me. Mm -hmm. And we're not thinking about, what about my neighbor? Right. What about my neighbor whose like kid is like dying and they can't have health insurance and mm -hmm. thing? Or who, who the reason they're sick is because there's a big factory mm -hmm. down the block that's polluting our air. So right. I think it's not we need to be more communal in our in our thoughts as Americans. That's mm -hmm. my idea. <laughs> And that doesn't mean vote Democrat for black yeah. folks. Yeah, that does that not mean vote, vote Democrat. I hate when black folks get into that conversation. No, I mean, vote for the candidate. <laughs> vote for the candidate who's going to do the best for not only you but your community, mm -hmm. but your future. Right. 
it doesn't matter about what their position is or their party. It's, it's about what it's about specifically what are their politics. Yeah, what are they going you know? to do? What do they believe in? Do, mm -hmm. do you believe what they believe in? Right. Like, what is their character like? Do you believe mm -hmm. what they say they're going to do, they are going to do? Right. And then investing in those folks, too. Yeah. And, and, and keep calling them. Yeah, like, invest in them. Invest like, in especially them. your local politicians. You're like, man, why are these potholes on, on my block? Call your, your all, local alderman every day until that mm -hmm. damn pothole is filled. Exactly. You want to stop signs? Make them do their job. Yeah, it's like, I call my alderman all the time. I was like, there's, like in my mother's house, I call, I'm like, there, I, there's skunks around the block. I want these skunks to do something about mm -hmm. I don't like I don't like animals. Yep. <laughs> Especially those animals. You mm -hmm. do something about them. I'm going to call you every day till I stop seeing them. Yep. That's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. But see, that's, that, and that's, that's, that's where I think the education needs to yeah. be geared towards more so. Particularly with those folks who live in, like, the inner city. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, you get those folks, they don't have time to stop and figure out politics. Yeah. They don't got time to sit down and read about, you know, their local congressman and about who is best fit for the job because they got to work their own damn jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, they get home 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock every day tired. Mm -hmm. Then they got to deal with their kids, got to deal with their wife, got to deal with all other kinds of parts of life. They ain't worried about no politics. Then they got to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and do it all over again. And do it all over again. <laughs> do it all over again, right? So, you know, so it's, you know, particularly those folks who have to find different ways to reach them you know, and to inform them because they a lot of those folks still vote, yeah. but they usually vote uninformed. Yeah. You know, so what do we do about that? How do we how do we how do we educate those folks about voters, or how do we get those types of folks serious about voting uh, and putting people into office? You know, I think that's something that needs to be you know we thought out by communities, yeah. not necessarily by individuals or certain individuals who sit from a certain seat. I think those are ideas that need to be thought out in the communities. Yeah, and it's like there's people who there are people in the communities who are informed. It's mm -hmm. like, but it's not your job to hold in information. Right. Information is meant to be spread. Mm -hmm. And you find the best way, like, okay, my people don't know about these candidates. What's the best way that they can learn about these candidates? Mm -hmm. and, and get that information out there. Right. Get, to, get them, speak to a language that they understand. Exactly, man. Yeah. I mean, anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to ask me? Anything you want to know about what's going on in Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Doc, look, I'm still stuck on Indianapolis right now. <laughs> I don't want Chicago's problems. Yeah, <laughs> oh, but oh, no, it's a great thing that happened in Chicago lately. They're getting, they're doing away with late fees for the Chicago Public Library. So they so if you have That's like fines, yeah. libraries, they're doing away with all that. So please get a library card if you live in Chicago. <laughs> Li libraries are good. I love libraries. Yeah, man. I, I it helped me write my master's program. I went to the archives at Chicago Public Library. Mm. <laughs> I actually just I'm actually considering getting a library card here. I just want to read some books. Yeah. I'm not really interested in using it for my research stuff, but yeah. Yeah, but you never know. If they have something in the archives. It might it might like draw your stories because they found something that I didn't know. Like it was a library on the south side that had all of like Horace Caden papers, and he wrote oh, like the you know the history of like Bronzeville and like mm -hmm. housing and the Great Migration. I was just like, I don't, I don't have to go like go to New York or anywhere to do my research. I can just stay right home and do it. Right in your, right in your backyard, <laughs> baby. Yes, sir. So yeah, so yeah, everybody, wherever you are, listen to this. Go to your local library. Just see what they have. Get a library card. Just walk around. It's like they might find a book that you like. I want to read this book forever. I don't know where it is. I thought it was out of print. Your library has. 
I'm going to throw something on there too just to add to that thought. Make your kids read. You got kids. They got game systems. Turn it off. Go get them a book. Make them read for an hour. Read with them for an hour. Talk to them about the reading. Help them articulate the reading, not just regurgitate it. Help them to be able to understand what they're reading. Make them better readers. Reading is knowledge. It's power. You know, not that television, not that video game. Turn off that damn Fortnite. Lord <laughs> Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk to my little cousin no more. Like, like they, because they get mad at me. Only if I buy my books. I buy them books every Christmas, birthday, you get a book from me. Look, <laughs> look, I read with them. I make them sit down when I'm with my nephews. Uh, we sit down and read for about two hours. Oh, uh, and I see my little cousin. And then I make them, they can't do nothing else. They can't do nothing else. Until they can tell me what the reading was about. Yeah, that's how I see my cousin. I'm like, you read that book, what is it about? I'm like, no, I read the book too. It's not about yep. that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right, so I usually end this podcast with like, there's three things. So it's just the last book you read, the last film or movie you saw, and the last song you listened to. Okay. I'll come back to the last book I read. <laughs> so many. Um, Last song I listened to. Last song I listened to was uh, "Say So" by uh, P. J. Morton featuring JoJo. Oh, I was listening to P. J. Morton when I was cause I was riding. Actually, I just I had to go to Michigan this weekend. So uh, something I had to do. Man, that's a long drive. Dog, it's it's the song is so lovely, man. Yeah, but it was good. I heard it came on like the title playlist. I'm like, what is this? Yeah, dog. <laughs> so if y'all don't know that song, you need it in your life. Uh, last film I seen, so I got I got a jump on a film man called Clemency. Uh, it's uh, starring uh, Alfie Woodard. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's man, that film is it's crazy. Doc, you gonna love it, man. Okay. Uh, it's about uh, so in brief, the movie is just about um, it's about this guy who um, who was accused of shooting a, a police officer. Uh, ends up getting you know being sentenced to prison for like 15 years and is on death row. Uh, so the film is about Alfred Woodard, who's the main character, who is the warden of the prison, who, uh, oh dang, I'm telling the whole movie. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there. Clemency. Clemency. It comes out. Actually, the movie's not in theaters yet. The movie, uh, the movie comes out in theaters December 2019. So, right, so, you, so, you, got, so you got to a screening. You, uh, you, I got to a screening, baby. You big time. I got to a screening, man. That's why IU money gets you. <laughs> Alright, so let's, let's, I know we're, we're all reading a lot of books. Have to. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you. The, what's most, like, the most interesting book you read? The most interesting book I think I've read late, lately is uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Uh, yeah, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, man. I, I read it in, uh, I actually read it as a part of a class I'm involved. I'm taking a pedagogy course, actually, in anthropology <laughs> right now. Um, but uh, no, it was just an interesting read, just in learning about uh, Ferrer. Uh, I think his name is Paulo Ferrer, I think is the author's name. And just learning about his different perspectives on pedagogy, teaching, uh, methods of teaching, particularly students who are coming from, because uh, he kind of takes this Mar Marxist view, so he's very kind of class-oriented and focused uh, in terms of how he's looking at teaching students and people. Uh, but just looking at his perspective on how to teach those who have oppressed backgrounds by first, obviously, helping them to understand that they are oppressed and what it means for them to be in this oppressed you know, position, right? Um, this is a really interesting read. I think it's a good read, particularly for educators. Um, I think it's a, a necessary read, actually, for educators, um, just to gain some perspective 
uh, particularly when you're teaching students who are coming, uh, particularly from backgrounds like my own, uh, where I didn't understand my position uh, as an oppressed person until I came to college. Didn't even understand what it meant to be oppressed, to be poor, uh, to be poor class as opposed to middle class or high class. You know, understanding your position in life and how those uh, positions in life can sometimes force you into these parameters uh, where you might have choice, but those parameters can often cause you to be blocked from some of those choices that those who are in the middle class and the higher class can get to or a lot faster than you can, you know. So it's a great read, particularly for educators and also for those who are just interested in learning about the ideas of surrounding oppression uh, and oppressed people, particularly black folks and brown folks. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm a mean to read that. It's on my reading list. I, I bought it. I bought the ebook, but I just... Class work has gotten to uh, so I guess yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick it up like uh, Thanksgiving break Thanksgiving break I'm because I plan on writing like my essays and papers early so mm -hmm. Thanksgiving break I should be free. Same. Because uh, right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's I learned it's very it's very good for your health to do things early. Always <laughs> always gonna jump don't be a procrastinator. Yeah. <laughs> All right so thank thank you Bobby for coming in and sitting with me. I yes, hope to have you again. Yes, sir. So man. next time we can just talk about. Like, a lot of times when I bring on people, talk to people. Sometimes we just talk about anything. Let's talk. <laughs> so, I'm down with it, brother. Yeah. So when it, this is a very busy man, so I gotta find. <laughs> 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 so, might be a couple of months before we speak again. <laughs> it's very possible, man. I got stuff to do, Doc. Yeah. Trying to get this PhD, baby. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So thank you again. And uh, this this will be. Oh, you have anything to plug? Anything you want to plug? Uh, the only thing I want to plug right now is the Archives of African American Music and Culture. If you live in Bloomington, Indiana, or if you live outside of Bloomington, Indiana, particularly those who you all are that are involved in the universities or in grad programs and such, uh, we are an archive here in, um, in Bloomington, and I think it is a great place, uh, particularly those who are doing mu uh, gospel music research, but also black popular music research. Come visit us. Check out our website online. You can go to Af uh, Archives of African American Music and Culture or AAAMC.com uh, online, or just type in the, uh, those words on Google, and uh, we should come up and check, up, check out our website. We have a lot of things to offer you. Look it up. Yeah. Utilize it. Yes, yes, yes. That is wonderful, wonderful asset to all you guys researching black music. I know a few people doing that, so I better see y'all in Bloomington soon. <laughs> and so, as always, you can catch this podcast on Spotify, on iTunes, or Apple Music now. I guess iTunes has went away. Uh, and SoundCloud, something for the people, all one word, like Music Soul Child, something for the people. <laughs> and, and as always, be good, and please drink your water. Peace. If you love me, just say so.